stars you should know on episode 294 of the actual astronomy podcast i'm chris and joining me is sheen we are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars and asking what are your favorite stars so uh we have dave chapman joining us today he has been on the show a few times he's a former editor of the rasc observers handbook and he's also a past observing chair and amongst lots of other stuff i've i've worked with dave lots in the past and uh, yeah, we'll just welcome you back to the show, Dave. And by the way, congratulations on your new uh, book, uh, Mi'kmaq Moons, which you do with uh, Kathy uh, LeBlanc. Yeah, well, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me back. Uh, um, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we were chatting there before. If, if it goes well, maybe we'll do a few of these. So uh, I like the idea. All right. Right on, right on. All right. So where do you want to start here, Dave? So... I see. I see in the notes we're looking at. We got focusing on uh, classical uh, Greek and Roman names and occasional uh, indigenous names. And uh, yeah, how do these relate to like go-to telescopes and computerized software and sky? Um, well, that's not a. Uh, <clears throat> that, excuse me. That's not a, a primary focus of this. Uh, uh, but uh, I guess I came across the idea. A while back working with john reed you know he he's put out a few books you know 50 things to see on the moon and you know 50 things to see in your telescope and i said hey you know uh i i'd like to do um i'd like to do one uh maybe you could help me with it uh 50 stars you should know right yeah and uh, in other words like of all the stars that are out there i'm gonna sorry i'm gonna clear my throat, throat> of all the stars that are out there which ones should you really know about you know what are the most important ones and why are they important and uh uh you know and most of those most of the ones that i've uh, thought of had names and so then uh, they have stories that go with them as well so so i came up with this idea but of course the 50 stars you should know quite, quite rapidly became 100 <laughs> because for each star that you know each important star there's always like a nearby star that's also interesting so it was always going to be like 50 plus, you know, 50 stars you should know, and then a couple on the side. So what we're going to do here is uh, I have them all divided up through the seasons for the Northern Hemisphere and also the circumpolar star. So I've got six groups of stars that I've got. And uh, for this episode, um, I've, I've got it down to about 11. Uh, 11 really important stars that you should know in the winter sky. And so people, sh after listening to this, they should be able to go out in the next clear night and with the assistance of like a star chart uh, or, you know, so it could be just something on your phone or in a magazine or a very basic star atlas. You should be able to go out and look at these stars. You don't need a telescope or binoculars. You should even be able to see them in the city because they're all they're all more than uh, second magnitude. Okay. Uh, so, so that's what we're going to focus on uh, this, this time. And yeah, I'm going to, uh, the, the Greek Roman thing is I'm, I'm using the kind of classic mythology for this, because that's what most of the stars have been, you know, most of the stars have been named after classical mythological feature uh, figures and so on. Uh, but occasionally, you know, we're we're sensitive to the fact that there are other cultures in the world, and they, you know, th th we all look at the same stars, but we have our own stories. So I'm trying, uh, when I can, to uh, identify some of the indigenous references uh, that go along with that. 
But to do more than that would require a lot more time, I think. So, and um, the other reason that you should know stars, other than that they're just darn interesting, is that if you do have a go-to telescope, like a Skywatcher SinScan or a Celestron, these star names are used in the hand, um, you know, the hand controllers when 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 you want to align your telescope. Okay. They say, oh, oh, they say, okay, well, you know, you, you know, what stars do you want to use to align your telescope? And and if you don't know the names of the stars and where they are in the sky, you're kind of lost. So uh, all of the ones we're going to talk about today are are Skywatcher SinScan uh, alignment stars. They also all happen to be um the standard celeste you know standard stars used in celestial navigation you know when people go out with sextants and stuff and yeah. shoot the stars and all of that so i don't know if anyone does that anymore but they have a history so there's 58 navigation stars and and this is going to be like 11 of those that are in the winter sky and okay. i was a bit biased towards choosing those because they are the brighter ones and and they're scattered across the sky as well <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I like that mention about um, uh, like the go-to controllers and alignment because probably 10 or 12 years ago, I got my first go-to and it was a Celestron Nexstar mount and I put a little uh, Maxudov on it. And my first night out went through the alignment process. And at that point in my observing life, you know, I knew where lots of globulars and galaxies and nebulas were in the sky yes. and I could identify the constellations, but I had not learned the stars. <laughs> so no. when it came time to do the alignment, it was like, what is this even telling me? <laughs> I have a funny story that goes with that. Um, I was out at St. Croix Observatory, our club observatory, and I was out there with a, a an astrophotographer whose name will go unmentioned. <laughs> and he... Um, he said to me, I was doing observing and he was photographing. He said, well, I, you know, he, he said, I, I want something different. I want to look at something different. And I said, well, uh, I don't know. Uh, what are you interested in? He said, what about one of those dark nebula? And I said, well, there's Bernard's E, Bernard's E nebula. And, and he said, um, well, where's that? And I said, well, you know, it's it's right next to Altair. And he, he kind of gave me a blank look and like, uh, I don't know where that is. And I was astonished. I like, what do you mean you don't know where Altair is? Like, it's, you know, anyway. But I think it's a common a common refrain these days because people get into these uh, into the hobby electronically, and and quite a lot of people don't learn the sky, you know, and so you know they're punching in coordinates or p punching in things uh, from a database, and the telescope slews to them, and uh, you know they, they, there it is in the telescope. But they skipped over that whole part about learning the sky and the constellations and the star names. And even I, I, I didn't know all of the names. So I kind of set about uh, learning them. Uh, so one of the things we're going to talk about uh, is spectral classes. Um, so the, the stars have colors, although to most people's eyes, they're fairly um, pale colors. They're not brilliant, saturated colors. And so there's a spectrum, which was uh, the, the, the star classes that were introduced by Annie Jump Cannon uh, probably more than 100 years ago. And from white to red, they go, it goes O, B, A, F, G, K, M. Now, I'm, I'm not sure why she ended up with that particular sequence. Um, and there is a mnemonic that goes with that, but 
I feel like uh, I'll let people uh, Google that for themselves uh, rather than to give it to them because the, some people find it a bit objectionable now. So anyway, I'll repeat that. So O-B-A-F-G-K-M. So O-B are like white stars, A-F are kind of yellow stars, G, uh, then you get into the oranges and the reds, okay? And I'll be talking about those spectral classes. Uh, and I'll just quickly, well, the, the, the references are in the notes. I won't read them out. The notes are going to be available. So you'll see the references that I've used. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just and, a quick note too, Dave, about that. We'll, we'll post the show notes on actualastronomy.com. So, yeah. you know, as Dave is taking us through this journey, uh, you don't have to worry about, you know, f- feverishly writing everything down or trying no, to memorize no. it all. There's, all that, a, there, there's <laughs> a lot of data here and I, I'll, I'll try not to dwell anything too long. And I, and I, you know, I want to make it interesting too. I, so I'm only including information that I think is particularly interesting. Uh, I guess the only other thing I want to say is, um, um, yeah, I think if if people have the time, they should grab uh, grab a, a star chart or pause the podcast, go get a star chart because I think it'll be a lot more uh, 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 clear if you have something like that to look at while you're listening. Oh, and Dave, just maybe we should do a very, very, very brief bit on stellar magnitude. Like, what's a bright star and what's a faint star? Oh, okay. Thanks. Well, did you want to do that? Uh, no, I I think we're good if if you want to do it or Shane wants to do it. Like, oh, was, Shane, yeah, really, my, my voice is still not all there, folks. Maybe so. maybe Shane can remind us about how okay. magnitudes work. Yeah, well, there's, there's, I guess, maybe two classes of magnitude. There's um, like the visual magnitude that we see from our location in the universe. And then there's the, I don't know if it's true magnitude or what the right term is, but the actual brightness, um, uh, which is a, a whole nother way of calculating it. But for the most part, you know, what we talk about is visual magnitudes. Um, and it's just an indication of how bright something is in the sky. And um, uh I'm trying to think of what some of the well-known um, magnitudes are of, say, the like a full moon. I, d- I can't remember that offhand. Well, um, mag- magnitude, uh, like negative uh, 12, negative 13. I think the sun's like negative 26. Yeah, and it's kind of a funny scale because, you know, normally, you know, the, the higher a negative number is, it means less. <laughs> but mm-hmm. in, in this case, a high negative number means extremely bright. And if it gets to the other side of the scale, like on the positive side, it's getting darker and darker uh, all the time. So I think, um, you know, a lot of stars that are considered to be on the threshold of naked eye brightness is usually around like a plus six. Um, If you're living in an urban center, sometimes magnitude two to three is about uh, your your limiting magnitude. And and what we mean by limiting magnitude is just what you're able to see with your, your eyes. Yeah, well, I think the magnitude system comes from language. Uh, people didn't have, at first they didn't have numbers for them, but they would just rank them. They would say, you know, stars of the first magnitude, stars of the second magnitude, stars of the third magnitude, and it, it would be like ranking. So as the, as the level of the number went up, the, the stars were dimmer. Uh, and it was just kind of a subjective thing. But then they tried to put a number on it, and then eventually find out that there was such a thing as stars of zero magnitude and stars of negative magnitude. And I think that's what kind of blows people's minds. If it was all just positive numbers, I think they'd get it. But 
when it goes negative, it's it gets a bit confusing. But uh, yeah, so thanks for that. Um, so I'm going to start with Orion for a couple of reasons. Uh, it's winter time, and Orion. I think I think everyone can agree that Orion is the most prominent uh, constellation in the sky. I mean, it's not the biggest, but it has the the most number of bright stars kind of concentrated in one area it's and it's very evocative of a human figure so and be, and being on the equator which will come up later it's it's visible to i would say the entire inhabited world uh, everybody all over the world should be able to see orion and in fact there's a lot of mythology associated with the constellation but there's a personal reason why i would like to start with orion and that is because it it is, in fact, it goes back to my, like day one in my journey in astronomy, and that is uh, over 60 years ago when I was eight years old living in Winnipeg. My father took me outside and showed me uh, the Big Dipper, and he showed me Orion. And, and this memory is seared you know, it's seared in my memory. Uh, this is how I started with astronomy. And he also showed me how from Orion you could go to other places in the sky to see other stars. I don't remember that so much. I might have conflated the memory of my father with some other stuff I might have read, but uh, but that's that's when David Chapman, the amateur astronomer, was born. Uh, and, and so that sticks with me. And, and uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to start with Orion and look at the bright stars in Orion. And then from Orion, we're going to go out and spread out over the sky and find some other uh, bright stars. So this should be uh, helpful for the absolute beginner who's just learning the sky. Um, and there's other constellations that you can use for this in different uh, seasons. So let's jump right in to Orion. And of course... The first star that I'm going to talk about is Betelgeuse, which is Alpha Orion. It's, it's actually not the brightest star in Orion. That's another story. And it has, uh, the name Betelgeuse has a number of different interpretations, uh, all relating somewhat to the shoulder of the giant, perhaps the left shoulder, I don't know. Now there's other more there's other more fanciful names uh, for that star in English, but Betelgeuse is uh, the one. And of course, the, there's a famous film by that name. So when when I told my grandson that that star was Betelgeuse, he got very excited. You know, and <laughs> suddenly got interested in astronomy. Like Betelgeuse. If I say and, it three times, what happens? <laughs> yeah, I know. And so. Uh, Anyway, it's magnitude 0 0.5, so it, and it's a variable star. And it's a M2 uh, uh, orange-red supergiant. So it's on the red side of things, which means it's a cooler star than the sun. And it has about 20 solar masses. Now, what makes it a supergiant, I think, is not so much how, many ma how much mass it has, but how physically big it is. Uh, and I don't have that. Uh, uh, but I, I do know that it is like the second or third largest star in terms of apparent angular diameter. Like, I think with the Hubble Space Telescope, they can actually resolve the disk of Betelgeuse and and actually see variations in um, uh, in intensity across the disk. And so it's like 50 milli arc seconds. Uh, and there's only a couple of stars uh, bigger than that to, to the uh, to, to the telescope. Um, 
so it's the tenth brightest star in the night sky. And in what I say from now on, when I say it's such and such brightest star, I'm not including the sun. The sun mm. is obviously the brightest star, mm -hmm. but the numbers I'm giving are just imagine I'm in the night sky, right? <laughs> yep. So it's you know it's it's a fairly bright star, tenth one, and and it's mostly bright because it's near to us. Uh, when I say near, all of, all of the stars I think except one I'm going to speak of are um, less than a thousand light years, and that in in a galactic sense. The galaxies, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of light years across. Anything that's closer than a thousand light years is pretty darn close. Yeah, for sure. And I guess, I guess if you get into structure, is there an Orion arm of the galaxy, is of of the Milky Way, or something yes, like that? Yes, I believe yeah. so. And so we're looking away from the we're looking away from the galactic center. So we're the Sagittarius, the galactic center is behind us, and we're looking out out of the galaxy uh, looking towards Orion, but it's the closest uh, arm to us. So we're, we're looking uh, across the galaxy, uh, out, out of the galaxy, but uh, this is one of the closest stars. So if, you, what if more... you see my, sorry, Dave, if you see my eyes wandering, it's because I've, I've got my, okay. my pocket sky atlas out lovely, and I'm following lovely, along lovely. here. So the only thing more I want to say about Betelgeuse, there's more, much more you could say, but it famously dimmed in, uh, was it how many, three years ago now or four years ago? In late 2019. Ago, I remember, well, it was right before the pandemic, maybe a hard I think it's, I think it's, it's, yeah, you're right. It's three years ago. So it was December 2019 into February 2020. Everybody got excited about Betelgeuse because it dimmed like by a huge amount. And and everybody, and people were saying, "Oh, you know, it's going to go supernova," because this is what happens when a when a red giant supergiant dims. It's getting ready to blow up, and everybody got excited. And even I got sucked in, and I was out there actually um, doing visual estimates of a Betelgeuse um, magnitude and sending my data into the American Association of Variable Star Observers, and. And, and and you know my data is there you know it's in it's in the graph and uh, we were using the nearby stars like Aldebaran to be, to be uh, the comparison stars it was a lot of fun to do that so could you just go out and look you know uh, you didn't need any special gear or anything uh, you just look and say well is it brighter than that or is it dimmer than that a little tricky because it's red but uh, anyway it turned out that that it turned out to be just a gas cloud that was spewed out of the star and kind of wandered across the face of the disk. And uh, I think that's what they figured out in the long term. What's why Betelgeuse uh, um, dimmed that time. So on the opposite end of Orion, down at the lower uh, right, I guess, is, um, is another bright star, Rigel, which is uh, confusingly called Beta Orion. Because Alpha, Beta, Gamma are supposed to be the order of uh, brightness of the stars in a constellation, but that rule isn't followed very well. So it's a, it's a magnitude 0 0.2 uh, star, which is, uh, uh, by the crazy magnitude system, actually slightly brighter. It's a variable double star. And rather than being red, it's a, okay, first of all, it means the foot. Rigel is the foot. And the foot of Orion. And it's a variable double star. It's a B2 white supergiant. So quite the opposite of uh, quite the opposite of Betelgeuse. It's, it's a very hot white star. Uh, it's about the same. It's about 18 to 24 solar masses. Uh, 
and it's the seventh brightest star in the sky. We also have to uh, say that it's it's home to uh, oh Kodos and Kang, isn't it? Uh, was it? Is there a Star Trek no, reference here from The Simpsons? Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry, I'm not up on pop culture. <laughs> so, uh, and these stars are important not only for themselves, but we're going to use them to find other stars later. So, so Rigel. The only other star which has a similar name in the sky is uh, a slightly different spelling. Rigel Cantorus uh, is in the foot of the centaur. In other words, it, the star Alpha Centauri, which is the, the closest star system to the sun. We can't see it in Canada. So uh, anyway, uh, it does show up, that name foot does show up elsewhere in uh, the names of the stars. Uh, Moving on, we're now going to consider Bellatrix, which is the other shoulder of Orion. It's, it's Gamma Orion, and the name of Bellatrix uh, means uh, female warrior, uh, which you could almost guess if you took any Latin in high school like me, Bellatrix. Be bellum is war, so if you feminize that, it's Bella. Bellatrix is a female warrior. I don't know much more about the name there. And it's uh, a magnitude 1.6. Uh, again, a B2 blue-white giant, not so big, eight solar masses. Uh, I don't have much more to say about Bellatrix, but it's important in finding uh, other stars. Uh, and uh, uh, now the next star we want to talk about, I want to talk a bit more about the, uh, the belt of Orion. There's three stars in the belt of Orion, um, which is quite a... Uh, quite a dramatic uh, uh, grouping of stars in the sky. A, a lot of people recognize that. It's the only um, set of three stars in a row like that. That's yeah, that uh, bright, not straight. It, it's interesting because almost invariably every summer at Kujik National Park, we'll have like a, a, a sky thing going on for the Perseids or in the middle of August, and there's always somebody says, "Show us Orion," and we say, "Well, no, we can't because it's a winter constellation." And everybody goes, what? You know, like, what, what do you mean by that? Okay, well, we have to explain, you know, about how the sun goes, you know, the earth goes around the sun in different seasons at certain times of the night, you only see portions of the sky. So, but it's invariable. Somebody wants to see Orion in August when it's really a winter constellation. Yeah, those, those words about a circular earth and going around the sun, that then can be fighting words in certain circles, yeah. Uh, okay, I guess so, uh, yeah. Well, all I, right. Yeah, I always think of... Did uh, I say it wrong? No, no. I always think of doing some star parties and then people going, so we go around the sun? People really... Oh, oh I've never had anyone question that. Oh, really? No. You've been lucky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, the center of those three stars, uh, you could have picked any one, but the center one is the navigation star, and it's called Alnilam. And it's Epsilon, Epsilon or Epsilon or Orion. And the name comes from String of Pearls. Well, it doesn't take too much imagination to see why you, you know, how you'd come up with that name, String of Pearls. So it's uh, it's about the same as uh, brightness as Bellatrix. It's magnitude one point seven. It's also a variable double star. I put these things in just uh, not really to talk about their variableness or their doubleness, but just to show how. There's an awful lot of double stars out there and an awful lot of variable stars. 
you know, people think of stars as being kind of very ordinary objects, solitary and, and steady, but many are variable and many are double or multiple. It's, it's almost more common than being solitary. And it's another uh, B0 blue white supergiant. It's uh, 40 stolar masses, like it's a, and it's a massive hot star. Wow. Uh, the, the only reason it's not so bright as uh, some of the other stars is that it's just further away. And I, I didn't notice, uh, I didn't write down how far, but that's your homework assignment. How far away is Al Nilam uh, <laughs> relative to say Sirius or one of the other brighter stars? Uh, so the, the three stars are Al Nitak on the right or east, Al Nilam and in the middle and Mintaka on, on in the west. And I think Dave, I think Al Nitak is, a notable star because I think if you're looking to measure an eyepiece field, oh yeah, that's a good one to use because uh, it's right on the celestial uh, equator, so it's easy to do your timings to figure out your field of view and stuff. Like well, that. Uh, well, they're all pretty close. Uh, I think Mintaka, actually, if you want to check your Mintaka is actually the closest. It's only twenty minutes of arc, but thank you for mentioning that because I'm going to speak speak to that in a minute. Uh, so I did a bit of research, and uh, in the Mi'kmaq culture, the the three stars and some of the the smaller stars around them are uh, they talk to, of them as three chiefs fishing, and so the three chiefs are the three stars, and then there's there's kind of there's dimmer stars associated with them that you can imagine would be their fishing pole or their fishing line. Hmm. So the, the Mi'kmaq call that three chiefs fishing. And here's a new one to me. Somebody came up uh, to me last summer and she was speaking with an obvious uh, Spanish accent. And I was interested because I've been learning Spanish for a couple of years and I recognized the accent. And she asked me if it was the three Marys. Oh. She was looking at Altair and the three stars and she said, is that the three Marys? I said, no, I've never heard that before. Like what? And she started talking about these three Marys. And I said, I I'm going to have to look that up. Well, it turns out that what was she was looking for was Orion. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and, and she was looking for the three belt stars, which in um, uh, Spanish speaking countries are called the three Marys. Oh. I asked my wife who they were, Mary Magdalene, Mary Mother of Jesus, I guess that's another Mary, but not being a Catholic or, or barely a Christian, I, I don't know. So that's another homework assignment. Who's the third Mary in the three Marys? <laughs> my wife's name is Mary, so maybe it's her. Yeah, yeah. So, but, okay, good. Uh, uh, now, you brought up the fact that, that Orion spans the, the equator. And in particular, the, the the belt stars are very close to the equator. Uh, Alnilam is actually just one degree south of the celestial uh, equator. So you're right, uh, timing Alnilam or any of those stars, they it probably wouldn't make much difference. If you time the the transit, you could be able you could convert the timing uh, across the field of view of your optics. You could convert that into a field of view easily. What is it 15 degrees is uh, one hour or something yeah. like that yeah, yeah exactly. hopefully it wouldn't take that long <laughs> but this is something that i discovered for myself that i mean it seems obvious in hindsight but when you have <clears throat> something prominent that spans the celestial equator like the belt of orion that wherever you are on earth wherever you're looking at that thing 
that rises in the east and sets in the west. And, and that, uh, that came home to me about 10 years ago when I was down in New Zealand and looking at all this stuff upside down. And I was watching Orion set with the, the belt of Orion and uh, Sirius above, and I was going crazy trying to figure all the geometry out. And it, it suddenly dawned on me that um, wherever, you, wherever you look at Orion from, setting or rising, it's east and west. So what an amazing navigational aid that is. If you get lost, you know, if you're out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in your canoe, you know, wondering which way to go, uh, watch for Orion to rise or set, and uh, Bob's your uncle. So that's kind of a, a self-discovery there. But in hindsight, it makes sense, right? Yeah. So uh, the one star that I'm not going to talk much about is Seif, which is Kappa Orion, which is the other foot of mm -hmm. Orion. Uh, it, it's it's not a particularly remarkable star. It's the dimmest of those that group, but uh, I'll, I'll just mention it in passing that it's there, um, in case anybody wanted to know what the name of that star was. So now it, it gets fun because we, now that we know Orion and the three, the belt of Orion, we can move on, and I'm going to move on to the constellation of Canis Major, the great dog, and the brightest star in the sky is Sirius. And in order to find Sirius, you follow the belt of Orion down and to the left, uh, and you find Sirius. You can't miss it. I mean, it. It is, in fact, the brightest star in the sky. If you see anything brighter, it's either Venus or something terrestrial, <laughs> or maybe a supernova if you're lucky. Anyway, Sirius is Alpha Canis Major, and there, there's no debate about this. It is the brightest star in the sky, therefore it is the brightest star in uh, Canis Major. And its name means scorching, because it's so bright and, and uh, people, um, you know, people recognize that. So it's one of these negative magnitude stars, magnitude minus 1.4. It's a double star, which we'll get to, and it is a A0 white Interestingly enough, main sequence star, only two solar masses, and yet oh, wow. it's the brightest star in the sky. And well, it's only 8.7 light years away. Hmm. Uh, now the nearest star period is only four light years away, and from Canada, we can't see it. So Sirius is in fact the closest star visible to the naked eye from our mid-northern latitudes. So there's a little trivia fact you can throw in at your next star party. Uh, to, to see anything uh, that's closer, you have to go south. You don't have to go all the way south because you can pick up Alpha Centauri from uh, you can from uh, the, the the Florida Keys, places like that. You can pick up Cuba. You can see Alpha Centauri, and, but it, it it's all of the all of the near well that nearest star is 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 uh, a southern star. Hmm. So. Uh, now here's the fun part. It's also it's called the Dog Star because it's uh, the the main star in Canis Major, the one of the hunting dogs that accompany Orion. But the Egyptians used it. Uh, they used to look for its heliacal rising in the summertime. Now, do you guys can you guys know what that means? The heliacal rising. Something to do with the sun. Yeah. Jane, do you? No, do you have it? no, no, I don't. Okay, so this is something that the ancient astronomers were really keen on. So what you do, imagine, imagine you're waiting to see Sirius in the sky, and it's it's summertime, and it's 
you know, it's a winter constellation. It's just disappeared a month or two ago in the, in the evening sky. And you want to see it again in the morning. So you go out and you wait. And you wait and you wait and you wait and you don't see it. And the sun comes up. The sky, sky gets too bright. So you go out the next day. You go out the next day. Eventually, there's going to be a day where you're looking for Sirius in the east and you see Sirius for like a minute. And then, it, and then the sun comes up and, and, and drowns it out. That's a very precise moment in time, and that's called the heliacal rising. And you mm. can use this for anything. So that so that is a very specific time on the calendar. The first time you can see something in the morning sky before the sun comes up. Before that date, you would not be able to see it, and after that date, you would be able to see it longer and longer and longer in the morning sky before the sun comes up. But the heliacal rising is that day when it first appears and then disappears because of the sun. Oh. And I've actually gone out in the middle of August and photographed this, photographed Sirius in the, in the dawn sky with Orion and all that. And uh, it, it is uh, the middle of August. Uh, and at, at the time, it used to be associated with the flooding of the Nile. So it was a very important date in the uh, agricultural calendar. That's no longer true for a couple of reasons. The, the seasons have shifted around a bit. Plus, they put in the Aswan Dam, so the Nile doesn't flood anymore. Uh, but here's the cool thing. Have you ever heard the term dog days of summer? Mm -hmm. Okay, yep. the dog days of summer are associated with the heliacal rising of Sirius, because when you see Sirius, it's the middle of August and it's hot. And so that's where the term dog, and, it, and Sirius is the main uh, star of Canis Major. So it's the dog star, and these are the dog days of summer. That's where that term comes from. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, pretty interesting. Well, got one more interesting story about Sirius. Uh, uh, Frederick Bessel, the mathematician, and I, I guess, uh, I don't know if he did any observing himself, but people were taking posi accurate positions of stars with telescopes and that. And he noticed that there was like about a 50-year oscillation in the position of Sirius based on observations that different people took. And, you know, if we plot them out, you see it's wobbling. It's wobbling back and forth. And he speculated, I believe he speculated, that it might have been a companion, but nobody could see it. Well, I don't know the dates, but uh, later on, there was a well-known uh, uh, telescope manufacturer maker named Alvin Clark, and he was testing out one of his big uh, refracting telescopes, which yeah, apparently is... Yeah, six inch. I think it was the twenty-six inch one. Okay, could be. Yeah, I don't know if it was that big, but it could be. Uh, it's a detail, but it, that that telescope is still in operation today. And he discovered, he observed the this tiny star next to Sirius, and it turned out to be a white dwarf. Sirius B was discovered by Alvin Clark visually while testing his new refractor. Hmm. Now the orbit of Sirius B around Sirius is quite uh, elongated. So there's times when it's way, way too close to Sirius to, to be observed. And there's times when it's quite a distance out. And I didn't correlate when he did his observation with the orbit. But at the current time, it's actually in a very good position to observe. Now I have observed, I've observed Sirius B in a telescope at the Winter Star Party with great difficulty, but I did observe it. I, uh, it. It made sense to me. I saw it, and it was where it was supposed to be. So it's an interesting uh, challenge observation uh, if you want to give it a try. 
Mm-hmm. And maybe just a, a reference back to Rigel, um, the separation between Rigel's primary and its uh, companion star is about the same distance as Sirius. Okay. And Rigel's companion, I believe, is about the same magnitude as Sirius B. So okay. if you're wanting to attempt uh, the split of Sirius, I always like to start with Rigel. Um, okay. And if you can split Rigel, try for Sirius. But if you can't even split Rigel, if the conditions aren't supporting that, I wouldn't even bother with Sirius. Yeah, okay. Well, anyway, it's worth, you know, for the for the power observers out there, you should give it a try. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, it's a whole... I mean, you could, you could go on about Sirius for a whole episode. In fact, somebody wrote a book <laughs> that's only about Sirius. It's called Sirius, <laughs> Brightest Diamond in the Sky by wow. Jay Holberg. And it's a fascinating book. You should read it. It's an amazing oh. book. I would have called it serious observing, but that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> so some people call the um, serious bead uh, white dwarf the pup because it's the uh, the companion to the dog star. It was the eighteen and a half inch. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I thought it was something like that. Yeah. Wow. Just eighteen and a half inch. Yeah, so the uh, the other star in in Canis Major. Uh, uh, once you found Sirius, you just pop down farther south. And you find Adhara, which is uh, Epsilon Canis Major, and it's called the Virgins. Um, it's another one of these uh, B2 blue-white giants, uh, 13 solar masses, so it's more massive than Sirius. And now get this, even though it's only magnitude 1.5, its true luminosity, it's more luminous than Sirius is. But the reason it's so dim is that it's 47 times more distant. So that's that's pretty cool. Like a very good, in one constellation, a, a, a demonstration of how dis- distance uh, affects the brightness of stars and not just their their uh, natural luminosity. The other thing about Adhara is that in, the, in ultraviolet light, uh, it is... Uh, the most luminous star in ultraviolet. I don't know what what that's all about, but it's, it makes it special. And uh, they think that it used to be brighter than Sirius because it was closer. But this is like millions of years ago. Interesting. Now, let's go from Orion again and go up and to the right, following the um, uh, f- following the. Uh, the belt of Orion, if we go up and to the right now, about the same kind of distance, we find Aldebaran, which is Alpha Taurus, the brightest star in Taurus. Uh, Aldebaran means the follower from the uh, point of view that it's always following the Pleiades star cluster in the sky. So it was given the name the follower. There may be more to that than I'm suggesting that there may be a bit of a story behind that but i didn't get a chance to get into that so it's another one of these variable multiple star systems it's magnitude 0.9 it's a k5 orange giant now see they call it a giant but it's only 1.2 solar masses so i'm guessing the giant super giant thing has something to do with uh, more of its physical size that it's much broader than uh, the sun because interestingly enough the sun is considered a dwarf star did you know that <laughs> there doesn't mm. seem to be any normal stars there are there are giants super giants and dwarfs hmm. 
I saw there's a, there's an article in the RESC uh, journal somewhere. Somebody wrote a few years ago. It's a whole article about how the sun is not an average star. <laughs> I wish I could find it, but it's a, it's it's a, a very interesting article. The sun is not an average star. So it's it's in an it's among the uh, Hyades star cluster, which is one of the closest open clusters to us, uh, but it is not associated uh, with uh, the Hyades. It just happens to be in the way. And uh, on a personal note, it was one of the comparison stars I used when I was uh, estimating the magnitude of Betelgeuse uh, three years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and it was a particularly good one because. Uh, it it was also a red star, uh, red, orange, whatever. Um, it's very difficult to compare uh, the brightness of a red star with that of a blue star or a white star because the colors are so different. So uh, it was it was a challenge. But Aldebaran, like you could see right away, was it brighter or dimmer than Aldebaran. That was like the first thing you'd look at. And then you'd look at some other stars to try to fine-tune it. So having found... Aldebaran. There's another star in uh, Taurus that's of interest, and it's called Elnath. And to find Elnath, go back to Orion, and you you've already found Rigel and Bellatrix. And you go up north. You go celestial north. You go up from Bellatrix, Rigel through Bellatrix, and up quite a ways, and you find Elnath. And it's one of the horn stars of the constellation Taurus. And it's, again, it's a navigation star. Beta Taurus, Elnath means the butting one. You imagine, you know, a, a, a bull butting you with its horns. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a magnitude 1.7 double star. Another B7 blue-white giant, five solar masses. Uh, and I'm going to get back to this later, but Elnath once was associated also with Auriga. So in some older star charts, you'll see Auriga, the charioteer, the, the, the line diagram going down and connecting with Taurus at the star Elnath. In other words, Elnath was considered to belong in, in some ways to both constellations. Uh, but that idea got tossed out by the International Astronomical Union when they reorganized things back in 1930. They said, no, you can't have a star belonging to two constellations. You have to choose so they chose it, Elnath to belong to Taurus. And uh, so that's how the charioteer lost his foot by having Elnath taken out of Arga. There's another star, uh, Alpha Andromeda, is part of the square of Pegasus, but it's now considered Andromeda and not Pegasus. So I don't know how many stars there are like that in the sky. That would be an interesting research project. So we're done with Taurus. And we go back to uh, go back to Orion again, <clears throat> and now we follow Bellatrix, uh, the two shoulders of Orion. Go from Bellatrix through Betelgeuse to the left and farther east, and you go away and you find a bright star named Procyon. It's a eighth brightest star in the sky, not that far away, eleven and a half light years. It's a magnitude 0.4, another variable double star. It's an F5 blue-white main sequence star. So main sequence means it's not a giant or a white dwarf or anything like that. It's it's doing its thing. 
it's about one and a half solar masses so not not that much different from the sun maybe a little bit hotter now here's the cool thing the name procyon um it literally translates as before the dog uh in greek the word for dog used to be uh kion or scion so what we call canis major the great dog in latin to the greeks was kion the dog and the so um, obviously sirius is the brightest star in in that constellation but because procyon even though it's so much farther east in the sky it's also very much farther north and and you can verify this for a fact procyon rises before sirius and so it ended up with the name procyon because it rises before the dog the, the dog star which i only learned that a few years ago and i thought that was an interesting little little story about that star now go back to orion <laughs> You can see why I started with Orion. Mm -hmm. You go back to Orion. Now you take Rigel and Betelgeuse. You follow Rigel through Betelgeuse across Orion and keep on going. And you find the twins, Gemini, the twins, Castor and Pollux. I'm only going to talk about Pollux because that is the navigation star. Beta Geminori. Uh, Beta Geminorum, so I think it's um, Beta Geminorum, um, and as far as I can make out, the mean the name means one of the twins. So I'm not sure how that relates to Castor, but um, it's a magnitude 1.2 variable star. It's a K star, so it's a little uh, a little cooler, yellow white. It's another giant star, 1.9 solar masses. So all these bright stars have turned out to be quite often uh, um, giant stars, N not too surprising. Um, nothing much more to say about Pollux. Um, Castor is Alpha Gem Gemini, but again, I don't think it's because, I think Pollux is still brighter than Castor. So there's another case where Alpha and Beta don't uh, correspond with the brightest stars. Um, now, here's a little mnemonic that I discovered quite a while ago. You look up and you say, well, there's Castor and Pollux, but which one's which? How do you know which one's which? And my friend Dale Ellis told me this. He said, oh, Pollux is the one that's closest to Procyon. Mm -hmm. And Castor is the one closest to Capella. Now we haven't met Capella yet, but if you know where Pollux, if you know where Procyon and Capella are, then you know which of the twins is which, because Procyon, or Pollux is closest to Procyon, and Castor is closest to Capella. P that's cool. I hadn't heard that before. No, yeah. you, you learn something every day, right? Yeah, that's a great tip. Thank you for me. <laughs> Could, would, I mean, do you, I mean, when you look up at them, you, s you see that they're the twins, but do you ever remember which one's which? I mean, honestly, like... When you just look at them, Castor and Pollux, which which one's which? <laughs> I, I always had a tr trouble figuring that one out. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're, we're winding up here. We, we just mentioned Capella. And to find Capella, not hard to find. Go back to Orion and go back to Rigel and Bellatrix again. If you follow Rigel through Bellatrix to Elnath, keep on going. 
and eventually you find the constellation of Auriga. Now, Capella's not exactly in line, but it's close enough. It's a pretty bright star. Now, Capella is, uh, obviously, it is Alpha Auriga. Auriga is the charioteer. Uh, no one can figure out why the charioteer is uh, carrying a goat and two kids. I haven't been able to, somehow he got encumbered with this, with this uh, farmyard animal on his uh, voyage. But, uh, so, but Capella is the she-goat. And uh, it's a magnitude 0 0.1. So if you wanted to know like what a magnitude 0 star was, Capella is a good example. And it's another variable multiple star. It's a G6 yellow-orange subgiant, 2.6 solar masses. Not too different from the sun, I guess. And it's the sixth brightest star in the sky. It's very, and it's very far north. Like here in Nova Scotia, I've, I've sat on the edge of a lake and I've seen Capella uh, when it's really close to the tree line in the middle of summer where it never sets. You can follow it. You can see Capello moving its way across the tree line yeah. on a clear night. Uh, and uh, so we're at about ma uh, a little bit less than latitude 45. So in most parts of Canada, you wouldn't be able to see that. But it is barely circumpolar here. But <clears throat> of the first magnitude stars and brighter, it is the one that's closest to the pole. Dave, okay. When, when uh, you remember, we started doing the uh, constellations for the handbook, and Capella was one of the first that was... You know, Auriga was yes, Auriga was the first one. Yeah, wrote about, and and the reason why I chose Auriga um, was just for that reason is that uh, now we're a little bit further north, so it's a little bit higher. But I was observing um, in the grasslands near some really big hills, and so I was looking up, and I was I thought I was totally in the park alone. It was back in the days before they promoted the grasslands as a park to go to. And I, I looked up and I saw what I thought was another camper up there. I, I thought it was their flashlight because it was just above the hill, like like where somebody would, would be holding a, a light if they were like setting up a tent. And then like about half an hour later, I looked up again and it was still at the same height above the hill. It was just over about uh, okay. you know, 100 meters or 50 meters or something like that. And so yeah. like I watched him like, this is really weird. And it just sort of gradually made yeah. its way across the hill. And after a couple hours, it started to rise up. So it, yeah. it's an interesting thing to see. Anyway, yeah. just to make sure. Yeah, so stars like that, stars like Capella spend an awful lot of time near the horizon. If you think about stars that rise and set and are circumpolar, they spend a lot of time near the horizon, uh, are often reported as UFOs by people because they, mm -hmm. they sparkle mm -hmm. a lot and uh, mm -hmm. you see all different colors and people get all excited that they discovered something. So those are the 11 winter stars I think you should know. I, I hope you feel that, that it was an interesting enough uh, group, uh, yeah. all connected through Orion. Uh, I wasn't, do we have time to just talk about a couple of asterisms or should we pretty I much? I think we're, we're getting towards the end there, Dave, because okay. one thing I, I was uh, gonna get you to talk a little bit about is the references. Uh, you mentioned a few references, um, Star Tales by Ian Ridley. Yes, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, I'll just say that if you're going to post the notes, uh, people people might already be aware of uh, things like the winter hexagon 
and the winter triangle, which are asterisms, which you can create from the stars I just described, and one that's new to me called the winter G. So those are in the notes. Uh, and if you look at the notes, you'll be able to figure those out. It's kind of fun. And I think I also provided uh, a bit of an image for that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so the uh, my go-to references, I mean, apart from the handbook, I didn't even write down the handbook, but I always go to the handbook first. But when it comes to things like star lore, uh, I really like Star Tales by Ian Ridpath. Uh, he's a British author, and there's a, a new version of that, 2018, that came out, a revised version, uh, and it includes a lot of defunct uh, constellations, which I know that uh, Chris would enjoy reading about. Yeah, I've um, read. I, he, he has his old version online, actually, one of the older. Yeah. He, he put it online. Yeah, well, that's that's nice of it. I mean, but I always for things like that, I always wanted to have like the latest greatest. You know, yeah. I think I gave mine away to somebody when I got the the my my Star Tales book was a, a used book from a library, and I and I gave I gifted it to somebody uh, when I got the new version. Uh, the other one, uh, it's a little bit more dense. It's a, a classic book called Star Names uh, by Richard Hinckley Allen. Uh, it's uh, a little bit harder to read, but it really goes into the classic origins and all the different, you know, Mesopotamian and Persian and the different names. One of the things you get from that book is uh, uh, how, like the stars we think of as the standard stars and the standard astronomy. I mean, it's just our convention, but I mean, th there's no end to the number of stories and names that stars go by and uh, that it, it's almost infinite, <laughs> you know, that mm -hmm. uh, uh, in Sky Safari 7 Pro, or all the Sky Safari, uh, one, of, one of the reasons I like it is that the star lore, they didn't do it themselves. They, they basically went to this guy, Jim Kaler, and he's online, Jim Kaler, K-A-L-E-R, and he's got a ton of star lore online. And they basically, I guess, got his permission, but all the sky lore that's in Sky Safari about all the stars is basically Jim Kaler's content and so the easiest way to access that for me is just to go into sky safari type in the name of a star and go and just read the little article there's so much information yeah. there and of course my my another go-to book for astronomy it's getting a bit long in the tooth but um a concise dictionary of astronomy 1991 by jacqueline mitten uh this is always next to my computer because i'm always thinking like well, how do you spell that? Or what's the real definition of such and such a term, you know? And so I grabbed this book. I mean, it's old, but I think a lot of that stuff doesn't change with time, you know, nomenclature and whatnot. And it's really well thumbed. And uh, it's just my, you know, my reference book. It's like my, yeah, well, it's a dictionary, right? So obviously, uh, I just say if, if I have any concern about anything, I just pop it open. I don't go on the internet. I pick the book up. Yeah. Uh, and so those are my sources, um, all all well recommended. Thanks. All right. Well, uh, do you have any other uh, things to add here before we wrap this uh, episode up? Uh, no, I th I think I've gone on long enough. Oh no, it was it was great. I I really enjoyed it. You know, thanks so much for sharing all this. Um, you know, I really like the idea of doing all these stars. These are stars that we all mention. Um, in the show like so many times but to actually have them all sort of grouped together um you know one spot or i guess if uh, if people like this they, they should let us know when we continue on with these every quarter and uh and for sure 
create an ultimate uh, reference there. Yeah, go ahead, Shane. Oh, I was uh, just going to say thanks, Dave. Really enjoyed it. Um, it's interesting because when I think of stars, it's usually just as navigational aids. And the stories yes. are more around the constellations. And the purpose is more of just so that I can find things to look yes. at through the telescope. Yeah. But there's so many stories associated with the stars and, and other yeah. interesting scientific information too, which uh, I, I I just really enjoyed this. So thanks. Yeah. You all, thanks very much for being my guinea pigs. <laughs> so yeah, let's see what people think about it. Uh, yeah. See if they'd like to hear more. I don't know if the... I'm not sure if the other episodes I have in mind are as sort of captivating as this one because of all the bright stars and yeah. Orion and so on. But I think we're just going to, if people are interested in doing that experiment, uh, it'd be interesting to see, you know, if we did the next one, which would be like the North Circumpolar stars. Yeah. It, I think it would be a different feel, but I, I, I'm looking forward to uh, preparing that if, if people are uh, are interested. So. Yeah, I like the idea because we do often get questions from uh, people that are maybe like a even a little bit more than just starting out, kind of like we were talking about, you know, which one's Castor and Pollux and that kind of stuff. Um, like that's really going to stick with me that, uh, you know, Pollux is one by Procyon and Castor's run Elicide. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, th things like that are really helpful to to those of us who've been well, doing good. it for a long time. Well, that well, that's definitely something that I added to this because I didn't read that anywhere else. Uh, that was yeah. something that I... You know, in my 60 years of doing amateur astronomer, that's one of those things that popped up and and, and has, I've brought along with me to deliver to you today. So <laughs> Yeah, because we, we get so many questions from people saying like, well, you know, it, it's all fun and good. I, uh, you know, I bought the telescope and, you know, I've been going out of the stars, but, you know, I live in the city or yeah, yeah. maybe they don't have the perfect skies or, or really good skies. And they're just trying to learn their way around. I think things like this are, are helpful to people. At least I hope they are. Good, good. And um, yeah, we'll just ask for people to uh, to let us know mm -hmm. if they yeah. like. So thanks, thanks so much for joining us today, Dave. It was a, and, uh, it was a pleasure, a, a great pleasure. Very good. Anything else to add, Shane? Just a quick reminder, uh, show notes will be available at uh, actualastronomy.com for the references uh, if anyone's interested. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. Thanks for joining us, Dave. We look forward to doing some more of these in the future. And uh, if you, the listener, enjoyed this podcast, uh, consider giving us a five-star rating, say something positive about the show, and uh, that way you'll help others to find actual astronomy in 2023. And we're always happy to get your observing reports, questions, or show feedback. And we'd like to hear if uh, people want to hear more of these, because uh, Dave and myself and Shane are, are pretty eager to do some more of these. If, if people want to hear them, uh, let us know. We can go through the entire sky uh, every uh, two or three months over over the coming year. It'd be, uh, I think, uh, a neat way for people uh, to learn a little bit more about the stars that they're actually seeing up there. You can get in touch with us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.